Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 21, and uh, we'll be teaching, or I'll be teaching through that. We'll be going through, continuing uh, our study on the law of Moses this morning, and uh, I think there's some, I think there's some good application that we can uh, glean from it for us this morning as well. Um, before we get into the study, I do want to share with you, um, Luke and Martha, of course, you know, are, are leaving. They're moving at the end of this month to uh, up the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, uh, so Sunday the 23rd, um, right after the service, we're going to do a potluck uh, in the in the fellowship hall and just uh, kind of a sending sending them off little get together. So if you're interested in participating in that, you're welcome to do that. And uh, you know we want to we want to bless them as they leave. Uh, uh, for those of you that are newer, uh, Luke, of course, is my son. But I mean, he started out serving in high school and uh, been serving faithfully ever since. And uh, I've seen him mature in ministry. And then, of course, he got married to a wonderful wife, and uh, she got involved in ministry just as well. And so um, they've been a big part of Calvary Chapel Rochester for many years. And so for us, it's, it's hard, of course, because it's family and the grandkids are leaving. Um, but uh, it also impacts the fellowship as well. And so anyways, we want to send them off and bless them. So if you want to participate in that, it's Sunday the 23rd, right after the service, we'll have a potluck. So um, also, I have a friend who's a Calvary Chapel pastor in Wisconsin, and he's a musician, and he put together a Christmas CD. We were selling some at the at the craft show yesterday. We have a, a, a quantity of them, and they're sitting right back on the on the sound booth back there. And if you're interested in one, um, he is selling them for, I believe it's $12 or two for 20, I think it is. Um, so if you're interested in that, um, you know, feel free to help yourself to those. And uh, uh, I listened to him, and it's a, he did a pretty good job. So anyways, that's available if you're interested in that. So why don't we go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come before you this morning. Lord, I thank you for those that were able to make it this morning and, and for all the help that we had this morning getting ready. Uh, Lord, just cleaning up and getting rid of the snow and setting up chairs and cleaning bathrooms and all the things that, that took place to make this happen this morning. Lord, I thank you for your servants. Lord, I thank you for each person here. And Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be a, just an academic study in the law of Moses, but Lord, that your spirit would speak to us through the study. That Lord, we might gain, uh, glean things that, uh, Lord, we can apply this morning to our own lives. And uh, so I pray that our ears would be open and our hearts would be open to what your spirit has to say to your church this morning. And I pray that you would fill me with your spirit as I share your word, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, um, the New Testament, the letters that Paul wrote, uh, you know, most of, most of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. And, uh, uh, you know, we have the Gospels, the four Gospels, and then we have all these epistles that were sent to different churches over a period of years. And, and the reason why they were sent 
the majority of the reasons why they were sent is there were issues in churches or there were things that were going on. And so Paul would write a letter to the Christians at a certain city, uh, the church, the believers that were there, most of them were churches that he had founded himself. And he would, he would just describe, you know, they, they'd have an issue. Paul, we have this going on at this church. What do we do about it? Or he, or he heard about it, a report from somebody. And so he would write a letter. And so most of the New Testament is kind of a, a response to issues that were occurring or creeping up in the new church, uh, in the early church. When we get to here in the in Exodus chapter 21 and 22 and a little bit of 23, this is what I described as the law of Moses. And really what it is, is an anticipation of what life is going to be like when the children of Israel are in the land of Canaan. Uh, you know, issues happen. Things crop up. Uh, circumstances happen. Uh, sin occurs, right? Because there's a bunch of, we're all sinners. And, and so there's things that are going to happen. People are going to get offended. There's going to be wrongs done to people because they're just like everybody else, even though they're God's chosen people, they're sinners. And so there's things that are going to be coming up. So the law of Moses really is anticipating what do you do in this situation? And it's really written for the judges of Israel that are going to be scattered throughout the land. You know, when there's issues that occur, uh, how do we deal with this? And so really what we're looking at is kind of a just a, a preparation for uh, what it's going to be like in the land of Israel. And and, and how do we deal with things? And so the Lord God's forming the nation of Israel right now. And, and so he's describing, this is what my nation, the nation that's led by me, this is how they're going to deal with issues. This is what they're going to look like as a nation, as a people. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. So verse uh, 33 of Exodus chapter 21 is where I left off uh, last week. And so here's a hypothetical situation. And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. If, one's man's, if one man's ox hurts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it. And the dead ox they shall also divide." Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall be his own. There's kind of a, an ongoing principle in these few first few verses. And, and it's a principle that, uh, you know, we wanted to apply to the craft show yesterday. You break it, you bought it. You know, that's kind of a principle. Uh, if you cause the death of someone's ox, you just bought their ox. If you were responsible, of course, for doing it. There's another principle that I think is going to come through and we'll see this. And the other principle is this. The universe does not revolve around you. And it does not revolve around me, even though I tend to think, hey, the universe runs, everything happens around me. You know, I'm the center of the universe. Well, that's, that's not true. Um, you know, uncovering a pit digging a pit or, or digging a hole in the ground and then walking away, no thought about, you know, I wonder if somebody's going to stumble into this and fall and get hurt. You know, you're just, you're just busy doing your own thing. You don't care about what anybody else does. Um, you have no concern that someone may fall into it. Hey, you're liable if someone does fall, if someone does get hurt. You know, when we got into the New Testament and I mentioned about Paul's letters, Paul, one of the things that Paul deals with in the church in Corinth is meat sacrifice to idols. 
And uh, so there was these marketplaces where, you know, the people would sacrifice their meat to the to the pagan gods, and then they would sell it in the marketplace and be hanging up there. And and uh, so Christians that were new born again Christians, they they've left their paganism and everything. And man, they don't have anything to do with idol worship. And so there's this big issue. What do we do with this? You know, if I go to somebody's house and they're still not saved and they offer me meat that was bought in the marketplace that was sacrificed to idol, what do I do, Paul? And uh, so Paul kind of talked about Christian liberty. Hey, think about other people. Yeah, you've got the freedom. You know, meat, it, it's just meat, okay? It doesn't mean, it's not like it's all of a sudden it's mystical meat or something. It's just meat and you can eat it. However, if you offend a brother, if you cause a brother or sister to stumble, man, don't, don't think about other people. The universe doesn't revolve around you. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And the, basically, the principle, the meat's kind of not an issue. The principle is, hey, I don't want to cause somebody else to fall. I don't want to, I don't want to, st- I got to think about other people. And so as believers, we should be thinking about our brothers and sisters and, 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 and just, you know, being careful. And so you're digging a pit, you don't think anything about it. If somebody falls into it, yeah, you're, you're liable for it. Because you should have covered up, you should have put a sign or something. The principle, I think, that it comes out of this, and I think it's going to come out throughout the entire portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning, is do you think of others more than you think of yourself? And as Christians, we're guilty of that sometimes too. We think about ourselves more than we think about other people. Let me put it this way. Let's, let's make it a little simpler because you might say, well, I don't always think about others. Let me say this. Do you, do you think of others at least as much as you think of yourself? Because we all think of ourselves. You know, I get up this morning. I want to take care of myself. I want to take a shower, brush my teeth. You know, I'm, I'm taking care of myself. But do I at least think about my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ as much as I think about myself? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5. He says, and he's speaking about love. Um, actually, it's 1 Corinthians 13. I think I got it wrong in my notes here. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. He says, love does not behave rudely. It does not seek his own. Again, the universe doesn't revolve around you or around me. He wrote this later on in 1 Corinthians, earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24. Let no one seek his own, but each others, uh, but each one the other's well-being. And I think he put it really good in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. And I think this is a, a principle for all of us to live by. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And, you know, okay, so we're talking about digging a pit and your oxen falls in and, you know, what do we do in that situation? But the principle that comes out is, man, be thought, think about other people. Think about your actions. How is it affecting people around you? It's a, it's a big deal. Well, now he moves into talking about theft and restitution, because again, these are sinners, and things are going to happen. And so, what do we do, Paul? Or Paul? What do we do, Moses? Uh, when you know these things happen, and this is anticipation of things happening. What happens when something gets stolen, and and how does a person pay it back? So that's what we look at there uh, in verse 
uh, chapter one, excuse me, chapter 22, verse 1. He says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. You know, it's interesting as I was looking at this. There's no incarceration dealt here. There's no jail. You send them to jail, let them serve 30 days or anything like that. It's just restitution. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, there's restitution, and of course, it's restoration, restitution with interest. You're going to pay back, but you're also going to pay more. Uh, you're going to compensate for more uh, than what you actually take. And, uh, and that would be a deterrent, right? Um, and so you see here, uh, for, there's a difference between an ox or a sheep as far as the restitution. Uh, there's five oxen f uh, for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And I think the reason is an ox is more valuable. You know, you can do a lot more work plowing fields and everything with an ox than you can with a sheep. I don't know if you can even plow a field with a sheep. I've never seen any sheep plows, but uh, anyway. So yeah, so the, it's a more valuable thing. And if you take that, you're going to pay back more as well. Now, I brought this verse in. It's in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Because, you know, as we go through this, it, it's, you read it, and you read through it, and I was reading it this morning for as you were coming in. It's, it seems kind of mundane. It's like, oh, man, well, you know, here we go. All these different laws about oxen and all this stuff. Um, God's intent was that his law would be on the hearts of his people. Because it's not just the letter of the law, but it's, it's the principle, the heart behind it. Just like I said earlier, the heart behind uh, verses 33 through 36 is, man, think about others. Think about what, how you, what you do, how does it impact those around you? And so in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, this is what the Lord was saying to the children of Judah. He says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. When, when uh, a family member of ours came to faith in the Lord and she had been living with somebody and, you know, they weren't married or anything like that and doing drugs and everything and she got born again. And, you know, we didn't have to, we didn't have to say, okay, you're a born again Christian. Here's the list of what you do and what you don't do. You know, what was fascinating is the Holy Spirit started speaking to her right away. And she said, I got to move out. I can't be living with this guy anymore. And we never said anything to her. It was, it was beautiful to see that transformation. She stopped taking drugs right then and there. To see that, and, and we didn't do it. It was, it was the Holy Spirit working on people's hearts. That's God's intent for each of us, that his law would be written on our hearts, just like it was for the children of Israel. And we see an example of that in the New Testament. There was a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And you know the story. He was a wee, wee little man, right? And he climbed up in a tree, a sycamore tree. I went to Sunday school, so I know the song. <laughs> For the Lord, he wanted to see. You know, and, uh, and, you know, he was a short guy, obviously. No offense to short people, but short people got... No, no. <laughs> uh, I need more coffee. Um, anyways. So Zacchaeus... The Lord, he, you know, the Lord Jesus interacts with him and he goes to his house. Zacchaeus is just completely transformed 
with his interaction with Jesus Christ. And in Luke 19, verse 8, here, the, the principle of restitution, nobody told Zacchaeus, hey, Zacchaeus, you got to do this. It was written on his heart when he came to, when he, you know, he came to the Lord there in, in Exodus, excuse me, in Luke 19, verse 8, it says, then Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, excuse me, stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus never said, you got to do this. That was just, it was on his heart. What a beautiful thing if you and I were just to have God's principles on our heart, and that's how we lived our lives. You know, and, and as, you know, we're, we're reading the Bible, we're reading what to do, what not to do, and, and it's great that you, we read that and follow that, but wouldn't it be better if it was just the Holy Spirit just leads us in that direction? Well, let's move on here. Verse 2 of chapter 22 says, If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. And so here's kind of the principle here. If an intruder, you're sleeping at night and you hear this bump in the night and it's some guy breaking in and he's trying to steal your, uh, you know, your, your stuff and it's under the cover of darkness, you don't know what's going on and, and you get up and you, you, you get into a scuffle with the guy. And you're wrestling with the guy in the dark. There's no lights, of course. And, and, uh, and you hit him and he dies. Well, you're not liable for his death because he came into your house at night. You didn't know what was going on. You just, you, you know, it's reasonable. It's a reasonable defense. And so the man would not be, the person would not be, the homeowner or farmer or whatever would not be liable. But it says, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. Now, that's kind of interesting. So at night, according to the law of Moses here, at night, someone breaks in, you get into a scuffle with them, you hit them over the head with a crowbar or whatever, and they die. You're not liable. But if he breaks in during the daytime and you kill him, you are liable. It's interesting. Again, this is the law of Moses. Uh, it seems like maybe the likelihood of being caught off guard and scuffling with them, you know, you, you see them coming or something. And I don't really understand 100% why that law is that way, but uh, evidently maybe you, you had enough warning, you, you know, you didn't have to kill them, you didn't have to use excessive force or something like that. But in any event, if you as the thief, you, you happen to not die, and you're caught, you're going to have to pay restitution. And then it says here, if you're unable to afford restitution, you know, you were, you're broke anyways and you're stealing, um, then you could be sold as a slave uh, to pay it off for six years, of course, until uh, either you paid it off or the Sabbath year of re release, which is the seventh year, whichever came first. So we talked about that last year, uh, or last year, last week, uh, talking about slavery and stuff like that. Um, and so think about this. And you, maybe you've heard the term of restorative justice or rehabilitation. Of course, that's the, that's the principle behind incarceration, right? We hope that they become rehabilitated in prison so they don't repeat. You know, you release them and you don't repeat. Um, that's kind of the principle in our justice system. Can you imagine the possibilities, though, that would occur here based on the law of Moses? So a thief comes in, 
start stealing from you. You don't kill him. And, uh, and he's found out. You discover who he is or whatever. And uh, he's, by the law of Moses, he's got to pay you back a certain percent plus, you know, restitution plus a certain percent over that with interest, whatever. And uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't have the money. So now he could become your slave. He could become your indentured servant for six years. And he's got to just work your field. If you're a farmer, hey, you're going to do chores with me. You're going to work with me, right alongside with me, or, you know, whatever it is, your businessman or whatever. He starts working for you for six years. And we talked about this last week, the bond slave. Can you imagine after a period of time, there's a relationship that starts building with the person. Pretty soon, you're not only friends, but you have this love for one another. And at the end of the six years, you go, okay, you're free. You've paid off your debt. And the guy goes, man, I love you. You're such a good person. I don't want to be free. I want to become your slave forever. And they become your bond slave. That's the possibility in the law of Moses. Where in our system, you look at our system. And I'm listen, I'm not, a, I'm not knocking jail, okay? I'm not saying we shouldn't have jails or anything like that. But look at the difference. If someone steals now, they go to jail. There's no interaction with the with the criminal, you know, or with the, with the victim. It's just they're off to jail, and and that relationship. There's no opportunity for that relationship. We're here in the law of Moses. There is. I think it's I think it's kind of cool. Verse five. Here's another situation. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and feeds it in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. Again, there's a principle that's taking place here, thinking about others. You know, it doesn't matter... If your cattle grazed on your neighbor's, say your neighbor's crop is just, it's a lousy crop, you know, it's like, a, it's its just basically, it's just stubble compared to, you've got this really good crop, you did a lot of work and it just looks really good, but your animal's been grazing over there uh, in your neighbor's field and so you've got to make restitution, you go, well, you know what, my crop is better than their crops, so I'm just going to give them the junk stuff that I have, I don't know if you have, do you have junk crops or not, I don't know, but you know, less... It doesn't look as good. You pick the worst to give back to this guy. Moses, or the law of Moses says you're not going to do that. You're going to give the best. Whatever the best is of your field, that's what you're going to give. It doesn't matter if your cattle grazed on their, you know, their stubble on the side of the field or anything like that. You're going to give them back the best of your crop. And then he continues there. If you're careless enough to kindle a fire that got out of control and it burns your neighbor's crop, you're responsible to make restitution for the damages. You know, there's times when a fire is just not the smartest thing to do. We had a guy that was attending our church here a few years ago, and, and he's got some property up just uh, north of, well, north of uh, uh, Faribault, just south of the Twin Cities, and he's got, a, he's got some property right next to Highway 35. And he just started burning a bunch of stuff. And he had this great big bonfire going. Next thing you know, the sheriff's pulling up. And he basically, it was pretty much blocking 30. The smoke was so bad, they, I mean, you couldn't see driving up and down 35. So <laughs> it was just like, you know, what are you thinking? What are you doing, you know? Um, but that's the principle here. If you're careless enough to kindle a fire and it gets out of control and it burns your neighbor's crops, you're liable for it. 
you're to make restitution for the damages. Again, you know, what kind of a principle can we pull out of this or what can, what can we lean, glean out of this? What I was thinking about is the fire that gets out of control. And all I thought about right away is in what James says in James chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, speaking about the tongue, our words, what we say. It says, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things are not to be so. And the principle I just was thinking about this is, man, don't kindle a fire with your tongue. Be careful what you say, because it can get out of hand very quickly. And you can do a lot of damage. And you're the person that started it. And so we got to be careful with our tongues. Moving on here some more hypothetical situations. What are we going to do in this situation? Verse 7. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges. And whomever the judges condemn shall be pay double to his neighbor. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be made between them both that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that. He shall not make it good. But if in fact it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. So there's a think about three different cases that are presented here. What do we do in this situation? So case number one. You ask your neighbor to store something for you. Maybe you're going on a trip or whatever, or you just, you're, you know, you ask them to store something. In our day and age, maybe a snowmobile, excuse me, snowmobile or a camper trailer or whatever. Uh, but, you know, in that day, you know, you're going away. Maybe you're going to Jerusalem or something, and you want your oxen to be taken care of. So you ask your neighbor to store something for you, and it ends up being stolen. You come back, and the guy says, hey, it got stolen while you were away. Uh, if... The thief is caught, the restitution would be about 200%. 
if no thief is caught, then the question is, was there really actually a thief? Or maybe the neighbor is just saying that. And so the case would be brought before the judges of Israel to determine if the neighbor embezzled from you the animal or not. That's one case. Case number two, you ask your neighbor to take care of, the, of your animals for you and one is injured or dies or wanders off. It says, then the oath, an oath of the Lord shall be between them both and the owner of it shall accept that. In other words, the owner is brought before the judges and the owner says, listen, I swear that I did not take it or I didn't, you know, I haven't stolen anything. Then their word was supposed to be good. Man, do you think how long it's been since our word was good nowadays, right? You know, you have to back up everything now. You can't trust people. It's sad. But in that day, your word was supposed to be good. But, again, sinners, sinners lie. That Lying is not new to our generation. It occurred back in that day, too. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, then he shall make restitution to the owner of it. So it turns out your neighbor was lying. He did steal it. Well, then he needs to make restitution. But here's the question that comes up in both of those cases. How did the truth come out? How did it come out? How was it discovered? You see, that's the job of the judge. The job of the judge is to discern, hey, who's telling the truth here? Solomon, the son of David, young man, becoming the king of Israel, it, the, the, the burden and the weight of, of being the, 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 the judge of Israel, the king of Israel, was so heavy on him, he was praying to the Lord. And he says this in 1 Kings uh, 3, verses 9. It says, Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? He could have asked for anything in humility. He's like, I just need wisdom to judge these people, to lead these people. And so God gave him wisdom. The Bible says there's nobody that's been wiser than him, then or since. And on top of that, gave him riches, wealth. For you and I, how do we discern? How do we discern when, you know, issues like that are, you know... In our day and age, a lot of times Christians will just they'll just sue other Christians, take them to court, you know, and then you're dealing with a with a, a secular judge who's you know weighing the things. And Paul dealt with that in Corinth also. He said, "Man, why are you taking your cases to a judge? Aren't you guys enough mature enough that you can just deal with your own issues? Can't you just work them out amongst yourselves?" I mean, he says, after all, you're you're going to be judging angels and speaking about, I believe, during the millennium, you know. Why can't you, you, you should be able to do that. What do you and I do? I mean, sometimes things just are heavy. Well, listen to this Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 6. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You know, if we're in a situation, we need to judge something, we need to discern something, go to the Lord. Say, Lord, I, I, I need wisdom in this situation. And God wants to give us wisdom. He wants to give us discernment. 
In fact, James 1 through 5, uh, 1 verse 5, he says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So you get into this situation. How do I discern what's going on here? Go to the Lord. Ask the Lord to reveal it to you, and he will. He will. So going back to our case, if the animal has been mauled by another animal, the neighbor who was keeping it needs to bring the carcass in as evidence. And in that case, if, that was the, if that's the situation, the neighbor's not liable for restitution. Well, now we got case number three here. You borrow your neighbor's ox to plow your field and it breaks a leg. Well, you're liable to make restitution. But if your neighbor... You know, he says, he doesn't want you to use his oxen. He goes, man, you don't know how to handle my oxen. I do. I'll plow the field. And so your neighbor comes over and plowing the field and the oxen breaks its leg. Well, you're, as the owner of the field, you're not liable because the owner's with it. He should have been taking care of it better or, you know, whatever. He's responsible. Or the last situation, if you hired your neighbor to plow your field with his ox, you know, you're renting out his services, basically, and, and the ox breaks its leg. Even though you're the owner of the field, he's liable. It's just part of doing business. It's just common business sense. We get to verse 16. Now there's a, now there's a, a completely different uh, issues that we're going to be talking about here. Verse 16, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. So here's this scenario. Some guy schmoozes a single girl and ends up sleeping with her. Um, he must then, according to the law of Moses, pay the bride price, which is a dowry, uh, for her to her father. And then she becomes his wife. Of course, maybe the guy's just a loser, <laughs> and the father doesn't want this schmoozer for a son-in-law. It's like, you're just a loser. I don't even want you for a son-in-law. In this case, he has the option to not force them to be married. However, the schmoozer still has to pay the dowry regardless. So that's the law of Moses there, okay? Um, but here's the question. Why even require them to get married in the first place? I mean, it's like, come on, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is because sleeping with someone is not just a physical union that takes place. Oh, there is a physical union that takes place, but there's a spiritual union that takes place as well. It's not just physical. That's why in Genesis 2, verse 24, the Bible says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's this, there's this, there's this spiritual union that takes place. When a man and a woman have that intimacy that was only designed for marriage. That's why in Malachi 2 verse 16, it says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Isn't that interesting? God equates divorce with violence. Why? Well, because you've got this one flesh that's been joined spiritually, and now it's torn apart. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a wound that that's, occurs there. There's a wound that, takes, that occurs there. Because anytime there's a, a, a physical union, 
there's also a spiritual union. And so this couple, they've, they've, they've become one, and now they're, they're torn apart. I used to use this uh, illustration when dealing with some of the scripture before, and I'd get a piece of a pink, piece of pink uh, construction paper and a piece of blue construction paper and get some Elmer's glue. And I would symbolize, okay, so you're, here's a man and a woman, and they're joining together, becoming one flesh. And you put, put them together. And they've been one flesh for a little while, and now they're divorced, and you rip it apart. You know what? You're going to end up with pink on the blue and blue on the pink, and there's holes, and it's rips, and it's tears. That's what spiritually takes place in divorce. That's why having sex outside of marriage is sin, because God's design is for sex is only in the context of the marriage of one man and one woman. Again, because anytime there's a physical union, there's also a spiritual union. That's also why later on uh, in the New Testament, uh, the Bible talks about the followers of Christ not becoming unequally yoked in marriage to unbelievers. Because again, you're becoming one spiritually. How can you become one spiritually if your allegiance is to Jesus Christ and your spouse isn't? It's just, it's not going to work. There's going to be problems throughout your married life if that's the case. That's why Paul says this, and I think it's a warning to anybody that's seeking to get into a relationship with an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So this is, God takes this seriously because of that spiritual union that takes place. Well, here's some more things. Verse 18. We have kind of a row of three things that are really capital punishments. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. That's the first one. Second one, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. The third one, he who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord, he shall be utterly destroyed. So these three things, they're capital offenses. No restitution, no nothing. You stone them is what you do. Now, the first one, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. That word sorceress in the King James Version is, is witch, literally. And there's a rule of Bible interpretation. Uh, it's called the law of first mention. And so when you're going through the Bible and you come across the first mention of something, a principle or a thing, it's usually significant when you're trying to, when you're trying to understand the, the principle of what's being explained. The first time it mentions in the Bible, there's a significance behind it. And it's interesting that the first mention of witchcraft or sorcery occurs right here in the Law of Moses in Exodus chapter 22, verse 18. This is the very first mention. Well, what's significant? Well, basically it says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. So what's significant again about that? Here's the significance. There's zero toleration for witchcraft. Zero toleration for witchcraft. There's no qualifiers. There's no white magic. Uh, you know, that whole Harry Potter stuff? That It's, it's all... God doesn't look at it, well, it's just, you know, it's just a novel, it's just kid stuff. No, witchcraft God condemns. Also thing that's interesting to me, and I don't know the, unders I don't have an answer for it, but it's the first time, uh, this first time that witchcraft's mentioned, it's mentioned in the feminine form, a sorceress. 
not a sorcerer. And again, I don't, I didn't dig in to go, well, I wonder what that means. But it's an interesting thing. It'd be an interesting study to kind of dig into that. The next thing, bestiality, another zero tolerance sin. You know, it's just, it's just unnatural. And so the person that commits that, they need to be stoned. Idolatry. Again, that, that's a violation of the first commandment. God says, you should have no other gods before me. If you're sacrificing other gods, you, you need to be put to death. Very serious stuff. Verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know, it's easy to treat our loved ones well, right? We take care of our family. In fact, you should take care of your family. Um, the Bible says if a man doesn't take care of his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever. It's speaking about Christians. So we should take care of our loved ones. But it's easy to take care of your loved ones because you love them. The real test is, how do you deal with people you don't love? Or how do you deal with strangers? And so the Lord God's anticipating that. There's going to be strangers in the land of Israel. How do we treat them? And what's, what does he say there? Don't mistreat them. Don't oppress them. Later on in Malachi 3 verses 5, he says, don't turn them away. In fact, in Deuteronomy 10 verse 19, he says to love them, love the strangers. And why? Because you were once a stranger in Egypt. In fact, we're not going to get to it today, but in chapter 23, verse 9, he'll repeat it. He'll reiterate it. He'll say, also you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God repeats this throughout the, New Test- or throughout the Old Testament to the children of Israel. Hey, you were strangers. You were slaves once. Don't mistreat the slaves and the strangers around you. The principle here is put yourself in their shoes because you know what it's like. You know, when we have visitors that come into the church here, I know what it's like to be a visitor in a church. I know what it's like to, to be there and you're a new person and nobody talks to you. I know what that feeling is. It's kind of a, it's not, it's not a very comfortable feeling. So when I see a visitor in the church, man, I want to make a point to say hi to them, to make them feel welcome because I know I, I, that's how I want to feel. How do we deal with strangers? You deal with them how you would want to be dealt with. You've been in a similar situation as them at some point in your life. And it's not just strangers. It's, it's all kinds of situations. You've dealt with some of the same things that all of us deal with at some point in your life. You know what it's like to go through those. And so what would it have meant to you if someone extended mercy to you or cut you a break once or twice? What would it mean to you? You know what it would mean to you. And so God says, hey, you know what it was like. Now you start treating others the way you wish you were have, have been treated. Extend mercy and grace to you. Why? Because in reality, God has done that, done just that for us. He's extended mercy and grace to each one of us. So we should extend it to those around us. Verse 22. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. God does not tolerate the weak and defenseless being taken advantage of. Can you tell? He gets a little ticked off about that. He definitely uh, says 
you know, his wrath. He's going to become hot, angry about that. James says this in first, uh, James 1 verse 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. It's easy to take advantage of those that are weak and defenseless. God hates that. God will defend him. He's the defender of the fatherless. He's the defender of the widows. We come to another hypothetical situation here, verse 25, which is really not that hypothetical. It occurs all the time. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. And then it continues here in verse 26. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So here's a situation. Your neighbor owes you something, and he doesn't have the money to pay you. And so he wants to give you a pledge, a guarantee, like a deposit. I'm, I'm, I'm good for the money, but here I'm going to give you something to show you that I'm good for the money. And, you know, in our day and age, we have, you go to my closet, I got clothes, I got shirts that I don't wear. And we have garage shells, and Teresa says, you need to thin out your flock of stuff that's hanging up there. Get rid of the things, you know. I, for the longest time, I had these T-shirts that I wore in high school that I had. And then we first got married, and Teresa's like, you got to get rid of those things, man. They're like threads, you know. And I'm, I'm like, that's my favorite shirt but you know we have all kinds of clothes those people the children of Israel in that day and age they had basically what they wore and they might have an outer or they probably had an outer garment a cloak or something to keep them warm at night and so here during the day uh, someone comes up to you your neighbor and uh, they owe you something and so as a good measure of faith they give you their cloak as a deposit uh, until they can pay you back and uh, so what the law here is saying is that when it comes nighttime and it's getting colder and the guy's, you know, he's starting to shiver and stuff, don't hang on to that pledge. You give it back to him. Let him, let him have it back because what is he going to sleep in? Because that was in that day. You didn't have much, so that's what you had to, to keep warm at night. So some guy owes you. He's indebted to you. He hasn't paid you back. This is what the principle is. Extend some grace to them. Extend some grace to the guy. Let him have his outer garment back so he'll be warm at night. And the first argument would be, well, wait a minute, but he still owes me. I mean, the guy hasn't paid me back. I'm not even sure he's going to pay me back. He still owes me. So you mean I'm supposed to just give that up for him? You're absolutely right. He does owe you. And he needs to pay you back. He doesn't deserve your favor. He doesn't deserve you to give back the cloak to him because he's, he hasn't paid you back yet. He owes you. But you see, that's what grace is. Grace is undeserved merit, undeserved favor. And God says, extend your grace to him regardless because that's what grace is because God is a God of grace. Again, grace is God's unmerited favor. And then so the, he says there in verse 27, what will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Isn't that something? 
Here we got a God who's just super gracious to people. He cuts people slack. He extends mercy. And we're his children, his followers, and we don't cut people slack. We don't extend grace and mercy. Hey, they owe me. They're in the wrong. That's God's gracious, but we're not. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that sad? We need to be just like God, extending grace. Be gracious, God says, because I'm gracious. Listen, and I, a person that doesn't extend grace to others, you know, believers, they don't, you know, they're just not gracious. They don't, they don't cut people slack. They don't, they don't extend mercy. They're just not gracious in how they treat others. And they're born again believers. And I look at them and I go, you know, I don't say this out loud, but I think this. I go, you know, I don't think they really have a grasp on the grace that's been extended to them. Because they're not extending. If 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 you had a if you had a, a a good grasp on God's grace in your life, man, you can't help but extend grace to people around you. You can't help but do it. You can't help but forgive people when they sin against you because we've been forgiven of so much. Grace changes everything. Verse twenty-eight. Moving on here, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. It's interesting here. God ties together in this verse reviling God and cursing a ruler. It's like, yeah, but wait, wait a minute. That's just a, a politician or a leader that's he's not even a godly person. God has established rulers and leadership. And if you revile them, you're reviling God who appointed them. So we need to be careful in that area as well. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. How many of you remember President Obama's uh, 2012 campaign promise? Uh, or it wasn't a campaign promise. It was a campaign slogan and stuff. And, and it was this. Basically, it says, if you've got a business... You didn't build it. And, you know, it caused all kinds of uproar. I think what he was trying to get across was, hey, you know, the government, you know, they support you through different things and stuff. So, yeah, you've got your own business, but, you know, uh, uh, the government helped you get where you're at. And, and the whole spiel was basically uh, to uh, support government spending, you know, to, for raising taxes and all that stuff. Um, well, it was interesting. When that came out in 2012, that's when I had just got laid off from my company. After almost 28 years, I got laid off from the company. And uh, uh, at that point, we had already scheduled to go up to a reunion in Canada. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, I don't have the money to go. Well, um, the Lord worked it out. We were able to go, even though I w didn't have a job at that point. So we went on a trip. My brother and his wife, we, we rode, drove together up there. We stopped at the Canadian border, and we were on the U.S. side. Um, I don't even remember what state that we were in, but um, I think it was Montana. But uh, it was Idaho. That's what it was. Anyways, we were at this border, and there was this, you know, they have, they have gift shops and duty-free places there at the borders you typically. We went into this gift shop, and it was right at the edge of the border, and I cracked up because they had a sign on the outside of their thing that says, this is my business, and I did build it. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's cool. Um, anyways, 
Listen, I don't know about that whole spiel with uh, what President Obama did with the, you know, talking about that. Um, I don't know about the U.S. government and how much it really benefits, benefits us or not. Um, but this I do know. Everything that you and I have, it comes from God. Everything that we have, our, our talent, our brains to be able to, to do the job, the, the intuition, the knowledge, it comes from him. The physical ability to do our work, it comes from God. The opportunities to do our, everything comes from him. And so he wants us to give back to him the first fruits of all that he blesses us with. Why? Yeah, but it's mine. I earned it. Yeah, yeah. But God gave it to you. He wants us to give back to him the first fruits of all that he blesses. And I'm not just talking treasure. I'm talking our time, our talent, and our treasure. Give, give back to the Lord of the first fruits of what he's given to you. Verse 31, And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So, you know... <laughs> To me, if there was a dead animal in the field and, and uh, you know, dogs, maybe it's been laying there for a while. I don't think I'd want to eat it anyways. But uh, God's just telling him, hey, don't act like an animal. Don't act like a brute beast. That, that's, that's, what the, that's what the wild dogs eat. Let them eat it, but you don't eat it. The principle here has to deal with, uh, you know, uh, walking in the flesh and completely uh, just giving ourselves over to our animal instincts. God says, you're to be a holy people. Don't, don't act like animals. In fact, Peter says this, 1 Peter verses one, or excuse me, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. God has called you and I to be set apart from the world around us. Yeah, the world, you know, they go after partner after partner after partner. They marry, divorce, marry, divorce, partner, partner, you know, they, they, or they don't even get married. They, and they just, they just do it. Well, you're not to be that way because we're God's people. We're to look different from the world around us. And God was d developing the nation of Israel and says, this is what the nation, the, the people that are led by me, this is what they're going to look like. This is, this is how they're going to behave. This is how they're going to deal with things that happen. And so for us, you know, we need, to, we need to be set apart for the Lord. You know, as we've gone through these, all these different verses, I still think there's an overarching theme that comes through in all of this. And I think that theme basically is thinking about other people and being, you know, just not taking advantage of other people, uh, you know, being aware, you know, sometimes we think, well, I did this all myself. No, God blessed you in that. Don't, you know, don't just think about yourself. We're dealing with, inner, with other people around us. You know, I don't care if they don't, I don't care if they have a problem with that. No, we should care if they have a problem with things. Or, you know, or, you know, we just do things we don't even think. I wonder if anybody else is going to be impacted by what I do. No, we should be doing that. That, that's what should be written on the heart of God's people. That's what God was trying to impress to the children of Israel here 